Welcome to the Sustainability Research Pod, a podcast where you hear about applied research into education and sustainability. This podcast is brought to you by members of the Sustainability Research Group hosted at London Southbank University. The Sustainability Research Group is a collaborative, multidisciplinary group actively involved in researching practice, policy and pedagogy relating to sustainability. This episode is taken from the Sustainability and Climate Crisis Conference in June 2020. The session is titled COVID-19 versus Sustainability. Some of the questions posed in this session will include where does sustainability now feature as a priority? Is COVID-19 and sustainability one of the same thing? And what has COVID-19 revealed to us about society? We, we are joined by Jaya, Hannah, Mark and Hugh is will also be joining us shortly. Just as lockdown happened, we had a kind of debate as to whether we delivered this event or whether we should deliver it in person, given that lockdown was to happen. And we went with the fact that, well, this is a really important subject to consider um, and something that LSBU is really proud to, to, to kind of like be working on in so many different um, parts of the university. So we decided to go ahead um, with the event series not having had any venture into virtual events at all. So it's really been a first, and it's been a massive learning curve. But in order to kind of be out there and showing people what we're doing, we thought it was important. And when you look around, it's really easy to see the impact that the pandemic has had, you know, COVID-19 on the environment and climate. Pollution levels are down, everyone knows that. But there are wider implications for the impact it has on sustainability. And my colleague Jaya has brought together a fantastic panel of speakers, and they're going to look into that and examine some of those um, factors um, and what it means um, long term. So Jaya and your panellists, over to you. Thank you so much, Neil. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. So let's get started. I'll begin. My name is Dr. Jay Gajparia, and I'm a sociologist at London Southbank University. I'm currently the course director of Education for Sustainability Master's Programme. I'm the chair of the Sustainability Research Group and chair of the Working Group on Domestic Abuse and COVID-19 Responding to Staff and Students. And my research interests are in all things sustainability, gender, race, education and social justice. So I'd like to welcome my panel for this session. Starting with Hannah Northrop, who's a lecturer in planning at London Southbank University with research interests in development management, looking at the environment side of uh, sustainability and development and exploring the role of planners in mitigating or adapting to sustainability issues. Next is Hugh, Dr. Hugh Atkinson. He's a distinguished research fellow at the Schumacher Institute in Bristol, Institute for Sustainable Solutions, and his research interests are in the politics of climate change and sustainable political economy. He's also a member of the Sustainability Research Group at LSBU. And lastly is Mark Turner, who is a chartered town planner, currently working as a local authority development manager, and he has a background in urban and environmental planning with over 20 years experience in development management in both the private and public sectors. So to get started, the idea for this debate session came out from a meeting with the members of the Sustainability Research Group in early April. I personally had a lot of anxiety about COVID-19 swallowing up the sustainability agenda. And in the first instance, I was really pessimistic, which is also why this session is titled Sustainability versus COVID-19. But as time has gone on and the conversations have developed, I think what started to emerge is the connections between COVID-19 and sustainability, and that there's perhaps an argument for it being one of the same things. 
So I think most of us will agree. Um, I know it's true for me um, that there's been really very little time to process the events of the last three months. And I'm hoping that this session will provide you know a space for us to collectively and individually to start doing some of that processing one of the things that i think covid19 has shown us nationally and internationally is the human capacity to mobilize and change society dramatically and radically to respond to a crisis and what this has done is it's offered us some hope that we can do the same for uh, the climate emergency and really, I just wanted to paraphrase from my colleague and friend, Thomas, who we saw earlier this morning. Um, and, and, I, and he said in that meeting in April, climate emergency needs to hire COVID-19's PR. And I thought that was quite a striking sentence. So when we're talking about sustainability, we're referring to approaches and responses to the impact of human-induced climate change, which we refer to as, commonly refer to as a uh, climate crisis or climate emergency. COVID-19 and the lockdown, um, I think many of us will, will feel and, and agree, has amplified a lot of deep-rooted uh, social inequalities, the intersecting dimensions of structural discrimination, gender, class, race, sexual identities. And there is a greater call for the use of a systems thinking approach. My first question to the panel is what has COVID-19 revealed to us about society, particularly in relation to your respective research and work? So perhaps we can start with Hugh. Well, yeah, gosh, I think it's revealed uh, a lot, actually. I mean, one of the key things that's come out of this is that, you know, who are the key workers? Who do, who does, who does the economy depend on, you know, uh, You've seen not just the NHS, but frontline workers, postal workers, delivery people, people working as paramedics. You know, there hasn't been much of a role for derivative traders and market consultants during this particular crisis. So what, would, what one would hope is that after this pandemic recedes, that those people get the recognition they deserve. I think that pandemic has opened up a space for a more sustainable and a more socially just world. The problem is it could be transient. We've got to seize the moment because there's many examples at the moment of politicians who are under the cover of COVID are actually doing quite regressive things, particularly in the United States of America, but also here, i.e. the possibility of chlorinated chicken coming into Britain. So we need to seize that moment, I think. I've got quite a lot more I'd like to say on that, but perhaps somebody else can just chip in first. Sure. Hannah, would you like to come in here? Yeah, of course. Well, just sort of building on it, I think it's sort of been in some ways a dry run for the sustainability agenda. So I think we've seen a lot of fast moving policies and companies taking different actions to kind of show that actually it can be happened. So what has been quite nice is almost the flexibility and the range of governance that has come out of it, whether that's flexibility in things like working from home, change in our mobility and opening actually kind of making a platform as well for things to be discussed. Um, we've seen an increase in thing in political agendas really in a way of people discussing debates and coming forward. So as a society, I think it kind of shows that we, we can move forward, that we have it over and actually there is a sense of community around it as well. Can I come back um, there? I think yeah. that the point, what we've seen is, you know, there's been debates in the past, this community in Britain dead. Well, this crisis has shown that's far from the case. Huge community involvement, you know, brilliant examples of volunteering. 
what what it's shown is what you know what really matters in society i think what we need to do is to move away uh, the traditional measure of you know how we progress you know gdp gross domestic product that doesn't measure all the volunteering all the caring that goes into our society it's a measure that's been hardwired as how we progress and get better but it just doesn't apply anymore i remember once bobby kennedy most of you are too young to remember him he was a famous american politician in 1968 he said that gdp measures everything except that which is worthwhile and i think that's the point we need to move towards more of a society where well-being and happiness matter and caring and community and this pandemic whether it lasts, that's the creed debate, but it's shown that that's still, that's there and very powerful in our, in our society, not just in Britain, but across the globe. Thank you, Hugh. And what about you, Mark? It's, it's interesting what Hugh said about society and whether it's a transient. I'm one of the unfortunate individuals. I've been, uh, in, I've been shielded during this process, so I've been very reliant on, quite frankly, my neighbours being good and decent people. Uh, I've been reliant upon society helping me um, to function and to live. And I've seen a phenomenal shift in, in tolerance. People have become more tolerant to each other. Uh, let's be honest with you. Normally, I'm at home. I get up in the morning and I go away and drive away and work in my workplace, and then I come back. Um, what happens during the day doesn't really bother me because I'm not here. Uh, we've had to go through 24/7 being bothered by what's next door because I don't mm. go away. Now, right at the beginning of, of the crisis, I saw a phenomenal degree of community spirit and tolerance. What's interesting to my mind is uh, I believe the tolerance is beginning to wear a bit thin. The example I'll give from a development management perspective, a few weeks ago, government announced that there was gonna be a relaxation on conditions so we could get house building moving again. Uh, normally we'd say, for example, stop, your, stop building works at about five o'clock. You know, five o'clock and off you go. And what government have said is, no, no, come on, let them go on longer. Let them go to nine o'clock because after all we need to get building. And it's very interesting that as that started to happen, and it's small at the moment, but it's beginning, the level of complaint is rising about noise coming from those developments that we all thought as a society we needed to happen. So to my mind, yes, there's without doubt, there's been phenomenal community spirit and long may it continue. I think we need to harness it, as Hugh said, we really need to get to grips with that because it's something that's just not measured. The flip side though, we also need to acknowledge that the human persona needs to become that little bit more tolerant and maintain that tolerance if we're gonna change as a society, which I think coronavirus is gonna do for us. And I think it's bringing forward far quicker than the climate crisis was. It's really been a far more um, important change or, or shift in attitude. I think what I've heard is some positive um, aspects of, you know, uh, COVID-19 um, revealing to us as a society, but I think there's the flip side of it is that, you know, there is certain groups of people, particularly black and minority ethnic people, for instance, who are vulnerable um, to COVID-19, which we all accept now, but this relates specifically to the racial health inequalities and the sustainability of our health systems. In relation to that, we've also got, you know, we've seen the, the dramatic rise in domestic abuse under lockdown. And then, you know, we also know that in developing countries, just generally those living under the poverty line, women make up the largest percentage of those um, who will suffer from the, the climate crisis first. And people like Vandana Shiva and Maria Myers have, have spoken at large about this for many, many decades, actually. You know, the links between climate change and gender inequality and COVID-19 has very much shown up, mm. uh, illuminated 
a lot of those uh, inequalities, which I think what I'm hearing everybody says is that there's more of a willingness now to talk about those things. Whereas I think we were being shut down once before. I also just want to talk really quickly about another thing that I think it's illuminated is that the, the, the gender inequality in the workplace is still very much alive and kicking and um, the gender division of labor. Um, a lot of women are, who are carers for adults or, or young people, children and managing careers and work, um, they have really uh, had a negative impact during this lockdown period. So, um, so I think it sounds like there's, you know, uh, there's, there's some opportunities, but there's also a lot of work that really needs to be done, which under this pandemic, we seem to be able to uh, be willing to, to see. Hannah, did you want to come in? No, it was more sort of a comment on the built uh, environment side of things of say the positive of the crisis is in line with what you said about social inequalities is it's brought that forward. Like it's a platform, like it's highlighted those negative sides, but it's brought into discussion and that's what's so good about it because it suddenly pushed everyone, everyone's talking about sustainability inequalities. However, the pivotal point is going to be getting the right actions as a result of that. Now, whether starting work, um, allowing work beyond five is a good policy or not is, is a big question. Actually, I wonder if that is in line with some of the sustainability and decrease in inequalities but having that sort of joint response is really where we want to elevate there so I think it's about especially in the built environment how we respond to that knowing other pressures but being aware of these these inequalities that are not unfortunately they're not going to go away and they will get worse with reactions of climate change going forward and in a way it's good we almost identified some of those groups but a lot of policy and reaction needs to come out of it and I think some will be really good policy but we'll also have some which might won't work as well as unfortunately yeah. thank like, you I, yeah I, yeah absolutely just on one environmental point i think people have appreciated it's now sadly traffic use is going up again for that period when the lockdown was at its strongest you know big improvements in in air quality and for a short time a dip in greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere and the way that nature given a chance, can bounce back and bounce back strongly. We all saw the, uh, those iconic scenes of those goats that have taken over Llandudno in Wales. But my, my favourite was there was a children's playground and uh, a bunch of sheep had got in there and they were pushing around the children. They were actually pushing around the children's roundabout, which I thought was very amusing. But on the, on the broader picture, I think what this has shown is that, you know, how important public government is, both at the local level and the national level. You know, we, need, we go back to the 2008 global financial crisis. It was the state sector that rescued that, followed by a period of austerity. What we can't allow this time and mustn't allow is a further period of austerity. That simply will not work. It doesn't need to happen. I, I paraphrase a phrase that I heard once, you know, economic problems are inevitable, but recessions are a political choice. And we've got to actually make sure that we don't allow our politicians to make such a choice. Thank you, Hugh. And I just want to share a comment by Sheila Grace, who said to you, GDP is very damaging. It's a very dim damaging marker of success. And then Lynn has also, Lynn Vickery has also made a comment in that she said um, it will be important for local government to take a more confident stand with government on local expertise and local knowledge to drive national priorities such as social care and environment. 
so central to this conversation is technology and uh, we are using it right now of course to communicate with one another um and technology has allowed us to continue in one way or another working from home as mark uh, spoke about and also a point that you made you know working from home has meant we are pumping uh, less co2 emissions We've been able to volunteer for the NHS, we were able to do grocery shopping, socialising and continuing um, our education, just a few things, activities that uh, technology has allowed us to do. But on the flip side, technology has revealed some stark inequalities around technology poverty mm. and technology literacy and even um, access to broadband and the internet. And, and then on the other side of it, we've got responsible and ethical technology in relation to the physical environment, as well as to human rights abuses um, of those, for instance, who work in the factories that make our devices. So it feels like um, technology is at the center of it, but it feels like there's a catch-22 situation here. We can see the benefits and we can see the, the costs as well. So what is the role of technology in a world post-COVID um, led by sustainability? I'll try and step into that, Joe. That's a huge question. I and mean, it's interesting to think about it. Right at the start, as uh, Neil was introducing us, he said there was a debate whether this would go ahead because of the need for remote working. I work in a sphere where we were told, notwithstanding lockdown, et cetera, et cetera, you will still function and planning and development management will still go on. Uh, and indeed, virtual planning committees will happen. So we had a very, very short turnaround, a quick learning um, curve for, for many of us, be it elected members or officers, in developing uh, an ability to use technology to deliver what's required. I think it's very interesting, maybe it kind of ties back into what Hannah said. Dr. Daniel Slade published a document recently, Five Reasons for Climate Justice in Spatial Planning. And to quote, the concept of climate justice focuses on those social dimensions and makes clear that climate change represents an ethical challenge as much as a scientific or technical one. Personally, I would question whether there should be COVID justice. The reason I'm saying that is because for 20 years, I've been waiting for the development management system. And that, when I say development management, that's the, can I have planning permission in eight weeks? Not, can we think about where we'll be in 20, 30 years? And quite frankly, my, my impression is that the wider public struggle with this concept of where we're going to be in 20, 30, 40 years. What we've seen, though, is that the wider public are quite capable of saying, we can see where we're going to be in a month's time and two months' time. And that's, that's how quickly we've had to respond to COVID. So my suggestion would be that what we've been doing is looking at a target that's so far away, it's almost become untenable. Whereas if we start moving towards those kind of ethical questions that matter tomorrow, maybe even today, but certainly tomorrow, and not in a year, two, five, 10, 20 years time, maybe that's what we need to harness the change that we're seeing right now anyway. Thank you, Mark. Oh, yeah. Hugh? I think technology has a role to play, but there's a danger that people see it as a quick, easy fix. Let's just get lots of nice glitzy technology, a nice technocratic fix, and all will be, all will be well. Sure, with, with new energy sources, renewable energy, solar power, wind power, tidal power, all those are important to move away from fossil fuels, clearly, but they also have an environmental impact themselves. The key thing, I think, is to move away from this obsessive consumerist all embracing consumption society. That's a big challenge though, isn't it? That's a big challenge to deal with. But I think that um, if, and the other worry of course, is in terms of new technology, this concept you know, of the fourth industrial revolution with artificial intelligence and all those other aspects of technology, what's that gonna do to society? You know, and what about jobs? Is that, 
will there be a new wave of jobs or will it cause lots of unemployment? So do we need to things like social justice, like the universal basic income to cover for that? So there's lots of uh, unknowns that we don't fully understand, but I think technology on its own is only part, part of the solution. It's much more challenging than that. And that's where we need political will and political leadership. Thank you, Hugh. Hannah? So between the two, um, I actually think Mark's concept of thinking, I'll be thinking short-term or long-term is quite interesting. Actually, I think it's, it's mixed both. So I've, something I've been I've seen a lot of currently is this last mile mobility that's been evolving, which is kind of the emergence of um, technological solutions to accessibility, such as those with e-bikes or e-scooters. And this has been kind of as a reaction of people how people are going to be getting to to work when we sort of go back to normal so i think there's some to play in that in the technology such as it even can be similar things just like public transport it's technically you know a, a technology in some way um online access but i actually think i keep sort of going back to the idea that we now have this platform i think it is worth thinking long, long term as well um you know getting that there's this sort of been discussion about smart cities which have been going on for a while and there is very much mixed reaction to smart cities we can see that in the canadian case with the with the smart city um emerging through there the answer is going isn't jumping to everything but it's taking bits that work that allow positive change it doesn't take up more environmental harmed it than it than it often puts so i mean our investment in solar and winds over years that's really developed over the time and now we can do it with a much lower environmental footprint than when it first emerged so i think it is important i think it's how we think of technology as well as important where it's just this simple technology you know simple things like getting internet out to everyone and allowing access that that's a really you know we don't we don't need to think of, oh, a new, we walk past our eye scan and it tells us what we want to buy technology. But I think it's a nice link between the two, building off after the sustainability agenda on that. Thank you. If um, I could. Yeah, go well, ahead, Mark. Just thinking of what Hannah's saying. It's interesting, isn't it? We all talk about technology and we all talk about the fact people are using less cars and we've got something immediately appreciable. And um, certainly things like wildlife and bird life, I mean, it's just phenomenal, the change that I've, I've experienced at home. But we do need to be aware that, for example, I'm now working from home. The government dropped the Code for Sustainable Homes some few years back. So actually, when homes are built, they're not necessarily being built to the same qualities and sustainable standards as commercial spaces. So if we're moving gradually to uh, an idea that we'll work from home more, which I, I think is probably the way we'll go, we need to appreciate that the new homes that are being built are possibly not as sustainable as they might be, whether that's... Uh, from a political perspective, the drive to get more homes, therefore let's lower standards just to get more built. There's an argument both ways, isn't there? But we do need to appreciate that, yes, we're not using cars, but the impact from everyone working from home is potentially significant, but possibly not yet been measured. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mark, for that. That's such a, a vital point you made. And I just want to link everybody back to the morning session because um, Pippa Palmer led a session uh, this morning about that. And she talked, um, you know, the, the session spoke to the fact that homes are not um, uh, sustainably made and the restrictions in government policies, etc., that, that have not allowed for that development to actually happen. 
to the rate and scale that they once hoped. And absolutely, the measure of the impact of the carbon footprint of us being at home and all individually working from home, it's not something we've actually thought about. I think there's a lot of unknowns. We're still in or coming out of, depending on where you're living, um, out of COVID-19. And so um, there's going to be a lot of information that we're going to be finding out and, and, and learning about. In relation to new technology, the whole you know, the whole world of algorithms, which seem to dominate our life, they're problematic on so many levels. They're based on a on an acceptance of you know current economic orthodoxy. They support a totally unsustainable economy, and in many ways, they're very gendered, aren't they? That they have certain built-in gender assumptions in them, and they need to be they need to be looked at and challenged. They quite. I read somewhere that uh, uh, all decisions about our pension funds investments they're not made by people. They're made by algorithms. So that's a, that's a silent, crucial area that's complicated. I don't pretend to understand it. Uh, so, I mean, when you go shopping online, suddenly on Facebook up comes an advert for something that you didn't want to buy, but the uh, algorithm thinks you might like it in the future. I think we need to pay a lot of close attention to that. Absolutely. And I think what each of us have said is is different types of technology just technology as a whole it's such a broad thing i mean when i'm talking about technology i'm in the world of education and really thinking about our students and and how some of our students have been crippled by the fact that they can't have access to the university campus and therefore cannot use software and uh, hardware that is going to allow them to do their projects or their assignments etc some of our students on the education for sustainability masters program are living on the other side of the world in remote places and have um, issues with access to getting on uh, onto the broadband and so so there's different kind of limitations depending on which angle you're looking at it from sorry i've just seen a couple of interesting points in the chat that are yes worth absolutely go for it um yeah. <laughs> sheila grace has just pointed out absolutely correctly it's not just about sustainable new homes homes already available can be retrofitted yes. Now, this, from a development management perspective, is where we need a change in shift in, in mentality in society. Yes. Um, solar panels alone. Um, when permitted development rights were brought in for solar panels, I spent months of my life dealing with aggrieved neighbours who didn't want to see solar panels on the roof of the building next door because, after all, it didn't suit the street scene. And interestingly, we regularly, regularly get complaints about that sort of thing. Goodness knows what will happen if someone suggests putting a windmill in their back garden. I can guarantee there will be objections to it. So we actually need society to come along with this. But I do completely agree with Sheila's point. Retrofitting's there. And I've just spotted Lynn made a very, very good point, which is yes. not all people can work from home. Mm. Totally understand that, totally agree. We're currently looking at a building that used to accommodate 300 officers. We think with all the current guidance, we might be able to squeeze 50 in. So we're literally going through the 300 and seeing which ones have to be. Now there's two There's two questions to be asked. Which are most affected in terms of productivity by not being in the office? But I'm also posing which ones are struggling mentally um, from a mental welfare perspective, not being in office with other people. So very difficult questions to be answered. I don't propose to have them all, but it's good points by Sheila and Lynn there. Yeah, Thank I think you. both of those again hi highlight those in, in qualities as well as we see. Mm. Um, there was a really interesting thing, it's sort of come out of circulation now, but when we first started before we got the warm weather, talking about retrofitting, there was a huge increase in people applying for their houses to have further insulation because they weren't used to going to an office space and we might see that again in winter. But that again also requires people to have the money, the capacity, their own home 
to insulate um and then again you know that that doesn't include people that then still have to leave so we might see a general increase but again we're seeing that in the more affluent part of, of the countries that can afford their own housing and this also differs depending on which country you're looking at as well i mean in some countries as lynn has said working from home isn't an option and we saw particularly in india there was a, a lot of people going back to their villages with no transport to get them there, but walking and, and so many died along the way. And so, you know, there are real issues that really need to be addressed and dealt with by governments. So it sounds as though what we're all saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, pre-COVID-19, kind of the systems and structures have, have, have not been working and, and there's the need for a radical change. And, and what COVID-19 has done is really shone a light on this. I mean, we've even now got big businesses who are more kind of open, it seems, and are urging our, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson to put the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals at the heart of the UK's COVID-19 recovery plans. Mm. The next question really is, what do you think needs to happen to ensure a collective, immediate and committed effort? to build back the economy in a greener and more sustainable way post COVID-19? I know it's a big question. So really I'm looking at kind of thinking about, you know, what are the, some of the more immediate things that we could, we could do? Who would like to start? I'll, I'll have a go at that. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I think first of all, it needs to be in the context of an economic approach where there's much more of a focus on resilience in so-called efficiency, because what the COVID crisis has shown is that economies across the globe may be efficient in neoliberal terms, but they're not resilient, and particularly our NHS. And if it goes to the whole basis of the kind of economy we want to have, and there's all this talk about, you know, moving away from globalization to more local solutions and shorter supply chains. For example, you know, if Britain's manufacturing base hadn't been so decimated, we might have been in a position earlier to make and manufacture far more protective equipment for frontline workers. I think the key thing in all of this is that whatever we do, and there has to be a transition away from fossil fuel economy, it has to be a just transition, both in Britain and globally. I, I remember again showing my age here uh, during the mid-1980s when the mining industry was uh, decimated by the Thatcher government in Britain. There was no just transition there. Entire communities were devastated and they're still feeling the effects of that today. So any transition has to be just. That's a, a point I'll start with and I'll, I'll come back in later on. Um, Mark or Hannah? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll say it's very much line. I think the focus will be on a green economic recovery. Um, so when we talk about sustainability, um, I often take the, the planning sort of realm of sustainable development which is um, economic environmental and social um, so when i sort of talk about sustainability unfortunately economics does come into it say so something that uh, we very much uh, we focus very much on individuals cur currently um but it's very much at, at the higher level and the focus would be sort of making sure to focus on infrastructure technology and skills in line with those un development goals and the free pongs and look at things like passing environmental laws as we, as we build up the economics as well. What's been really interesting to see for me is, is how companies react to the COVID situation. So we've seen a lot of companies being able to shift production. Um, you know, we look at 
major fashion realtors that shift to making masks and it kind of shows that this shift can happen so by in, encouraging um the money and and sort of the what's on on the green side of things shows that actually we can build up a sector and help promote that resilience by focusing on that recovery rather than maybe where some focuses have been previously i think that speaks also to the point that we made earlier that um covid19 shown us how radically we can change things and companies have been and businesses have been part of part of that where we've you know we've seen i think um i think it was in france we saw some of the big uh, perfume giants um starting to make uh, hand sanitizer you know at when, when when there was none to be found anywhere um mm. hugh did you want to come in yeah also linked to that uh People say in the 1970s, the workers at Lucas Aerospace had a plan to go away from you know, military production to more socially useful production. Politicians said it can't be done. To back up your point, we've had car manufacturers switching production to ventilators. Of course, it can be done. It's again, it's down to political will and challenging this kind of mindset that we can't change anything. Of course we can. Absolutely. I think it is. And that was a point that I wanted to make earlier on. It seems like it's it's a lot of it's to do with the mindset shift where we had some um, resistance to delivering. I'll go back to education again, delivering education online. We have now seen uh, people who have just got on it and started delivering, you know, whether it be secondary school, college, sixth form, university, higher education. We are delivering education online and people have had to make without choice a mind shift change and what that's what that's done is it's allowed people to see that it's possible and i think that just even venturing to that degree of possibility has um has created lots of opportunities i i think i'm i'm feeling more optimistic at, today at least <laughs> I think it's an interesting thing, Jack. You, you often get, uh, um, I keep reading in the press, that uh, allegations that one of the difficulties or one of the barriers to change are planners. Um, planners aren't. We're, we're managers of change. I mean, change is what we live for, change is what we're there for. Um, but we do need systems that are as reactive. Uh, I mean, I find it quite fascinating. I was doing a little bit of research before this. As of December 2018, so 2012, we get a new national planning policy frame. We have a new framework to work towards. Come forward to December 2018, 22% of local authorities have never actually submitted a new development plan to reflect the changes proposed in 2012. So that's taken six years and 22% are missing. If you actually look at the development plan in most areas, it couldn't have coped with things like the, the hospital in London that was brought forward purely for coronavirus. In fact, what happened there is the government had to bring in new emergency legislation to give the right to build the thing. If they'd have applied for it, I guarantee it would have probably taken 10 years to give permission to put the hospital there anyway, and the virus would probably be gone by then. So I think what we also need is a political will supported by society to change the way in which we, we move forward. Um, we're capable of moving forward at a greater pace, but also in a more resilient manner and a more reactive manner. But if we don't have the capacity to react, we just it's, it's business as usual. And that does bother me quite considerably when it comes to actual day-to-day -day development management. Is it about capacity or is it about will? I think it's will. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they proved it, didn't they, with the, um, with the hospital in London. The will was there to create legislation to allow it to happen. 
Now, arguably, did that legislation allow the public and, and, and residents in the vicinity to consider whether they'd like a hospital on, you know, in their neighbourhood? No, it didn't. Um, it was an emergency measure. Um, I can give you examples where I've dealt with planning applications for hospitals. And although we all think as a society we've been incredibly supportive with the NHS, believe me, the number of objections I've had to extensions to a hospital because of car parking and noise, and I've even had objections based on the in interference from the blue lights of the ambulances. So society needs to come with us too um, and be more accommodating. But no, I don't believe it's a capacity issue. I think, in fact, I would argue students that are coming through South Bank um, and other planning courses, they have a will to make things change. Thank they need you. to do it. Yeah. Could I, I make a couple of points about the global level very briefly? Sure. I think I think that the, one of the big challenges is going to be, you know, global action on this, particularly, pardon my language, when we have blowhards like Bolsonaro and Trump mm. in power. It's going to be a huge challenge. But the sustainable development goals, they're not perfect, but they, no. they you know, they're globally agreed set of aims, aspirations and policies, which point to an important way forward. And I think we need to, to work on build on them. And going back to the kind of economic shift that we need, it, it was mentioned in a panel earlier on today, the Smith Institute for in, in the Environment at Oxford University, they've published a report, I think it was uh, among the G20, you know, central bankers and finance ministers, not known for their left-wing radical views, most of them. And the evidence clearly shows that sust sustainable projects, you know, retrofitting, uh, better infrastructure, uh, have a much better stimulus effect on the economy than traditional government stimulus packages. So going down the green sustainable route in terms of building back better makes it makes economic sense. It just it, it, there's various multiplier effects. You know, so it benefits the economy, creates lots of jobs. So that in the short to medium term, a green recovery is just a rational way to go. Yeah. And I think education is quite an important element of that, linking back to Mark's point around, you know, planners coming out of LSBU. I think we do need and reiterating the systems thinking approach to education and really putting the SDGs, as you said, Hugh, they might not be perfect, but actually um, if we apply the systems thinking approach to the SDGs, Mm. And and then that in that enables us to improve access to educational delivery uh, using technology um, and embedding and integrating education for sustainability or education for sustainable sustainable development into the curriculum, but also teacher training. Then we are developing a generation of learners that will eventually go into the workplace that. Uh, we're looking at the long term there, aren't we? So I think there's there's the argument for what can we do short term and what can we do in the long term? Has anybody got anything to add to that? Well, I do agree. Education is crucial, isn't it, on every level? And I think this current crisis has educated lots and lots of people about how things can be done differently. But we uh, we need politicians that need to be educated, uh, <laughs> whether they're all willing to be, judging by some of our uh, politicians, I'm not sure that they've ever been educated in any meaningful way. That actually has any impact and makes the world a better place, but uh, that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, shall we move on then to the next question? Um, where do you think the biggest opportunities are for increased sustainability practices in uh, a world post-COVID-19? Mark? <laughs> the biggest opportunity, I think, is for people seeing 
how little changes can make a difference. As simple as putting an extra jumper on in the winter rather than turning the heating up an extra degree. It might only sound small, but you're going to get paradigm shift if you can achieve that. So it sort of bounces back off what Hugh was saying. Of course, we've got to get the politicians on board. We've got to get them working with us. But if as a society we can see that you do that climate injustice, it, it exists. It's real. Yes, it's got a longer term effect than the coronavirus injustice I've seen. But if we can get the public working on the smaller changes and nudge the small bits and pieces, but also nudge the, the, the politicians to make those bigger, bolder changes, I think that's the way forward. Thank you. Hannah? I think well, oh, an area that I've just become interested, I'm not an expert on it, but is the whole world of finance and investment and particularly sustainable climate finance. And there is a growing movement now amongst fund managers and the like, you know, to particularly led by companies like Aviva, you know, to push the whole sustainability agenda in terms of investment. It, again, it makes it makes financial sense and it's legally probably required because so many of the investments that companies have invested in the past, fossil fuels are now stranded assets. They can't be taken out of the ground. They're not worth they're not worth anything. So, you know, I think what we need is a mixture of new things to do, but use what's there at the moment to a better advantage. And finance, I think sustainable finance, investing in transitions from fossil fuels, investing in social justice projects. I think that's an important way to go. There's a long way to go, but the bits I've been reading, there are promising signs that that is somewhere where there are important developments that have taken place and for the future as well. Thank you. Hannah, did you want to come in before I go um, over to uh, the questions from the yeah, virtual definitely. audience? Yeah, I'm going to go slightly the opposite end, Mark, and I think that actually the biggest opportunity is what I've been saying is that this platform, this chance to go in on the green economic recovery and that shift in paradigm. The fact is it's pushed all of these movements, which were kind of going that way anyway, but it's brought it forward, I'd probably say by three years, you know, things such as the homework and the um, increased environmental awareness. Um, and it, it allows us almost to have this launch point um, from a base and build up. And whether that's things where we see you know, more on the built environment, do we start thinking about um, infrastructure, energy and environment first, rather than meeting things such as maybe housing targets? Do we look at moving to mixes to um, green spaces, um, that last mile mobility, the access to buy bicycles? Do we see things such as now people moving out of central places such as London or Manchester with this ability to work? and maybe increasing countryside living and I think that's what is the biggest thing I see is these sort of mass changes whether they're people joining together or as a result of policy and the issue is just more whether they are implemented how they're implemented and and, and how that's done but I think that's the biggest opportunity it'll just be interesting to see how that works and what that happened and what happens as a result of it. Maximising that opportunity it sounds as though maybe a little bit pessimistic, but we can easily forget. <laughs> and so really, we've got to react now. And if there's a delay in that, then forgetting will mean that the impact could be a lot less. What do you think about that? I think exactly, you know, if we yeah. 
now stuff sounds real, but if we forget about these highlighted social inequalities, if we forget that not everyone ha- has access, if we forget that there's a gender on, then our rebuilding could shift away from the focus that like a good focus could if we go, the, say we decide actually we're just going to focus on getting the economy going you know we're going to ignore everything else that i think there's a whole load of mischance can do and that will stress further inequalities there are but if we have sort of this joint up this is our focus we'll do these lines and mix-ins that's what's going to be the biggest opportunity thank you hannah um i'm just going to go to the uh, questions and just starting with i think it's more of a uh, of a comment from Stephen Barb, and he says that he asked a similar question to Matt to Toons. I, I think I referred to him as Coons, sorry, uh, this morning, but I'd be interested to hear the host panel opinion on the feasibility of hospital incinerators being designed or retrofitted to generate electricity and or hot water for use in hospital and beyond. The need for the heavy use of PPE in hospitals over the last few months has highlighted the issue of medical waste and sustainability issues. I'm not an expert on that, but yeah. uh, it, it is an issue. I, I was surprised to realise you know, how, how it's all just thrown away. And there's been reading reports that large amounts of it washing up on beaches and in rivers and in seas. It's uh, it, And I, th- I think the whole... The whole crisis, you know, simple things like coffee shops, not letting people bring their own cup in for fear of passing on the virus. The big increase in use of plastic bags because of fear of, you know, being thrown away because of the virus. These are all understandable fears. So the COVID crisis has created opportunities, but it's also posed a lot of problems as well. I I don't know whether, I mean, my mum was a nurse back in the day, a long time ago, and I think then gowns and outfits were reused. I'm not sure about the technicalities of it, but it it is a huge challenge. It's a big worry, yeah, no doubt about it. Thank you, yeah. I I don't have the answer. Hmm. As I recall, uh, believe it or not, many, many years ago, I I had a part-time job in a hospital, um, and strangely enough, I dealt with a medical incinerator um, planning application, so I've kind of seen probably two parts of the story. The big issue uh, for, for the hospitals, obviously, being the, the reusability of clothing. Um, so it's not the what can be thrown away, it's what can be adequately sterilised and move forward. Um, a family that work in an administrative side in the health service, and they will have to be issued with these scrubs and things like that. But of course, there weren't enough in the pipeline, so they've relied on them being made for the public. We move back to our society question. With regard to the incinerator question, I think the biggest difficulty, I mean, my, my understanding with these things is it's actually better to build uh, build or, or put a new modern one in than try and retrofit. Um, and that's an engineering question that I'm probably not, not qualified to answer. But the question mark always comes when you say we're going to install a brand new incinerator. If you say we're going to install a brand new incinerator to deal with medical waste, immaterial of whether that that the incineration process is creating energy that feeds back into the hospital, I guarantee you're going to have members of the public that are very concerned about that. Um, and sometimes rightfully so, there are obviously contaminants, etc. So personally, I'm not entirely sure that there is a, a satisfactory answer to how to deal with this kind of waste. Do you create the, the gowns and the equipment that can be sterilised? What kind of sterilisation processes do you need? How big do the autoclaves have to be built to, to accommodate what the hospital is going to generate? I genuinely don't think some of these old incinerators could be retrofitted. So then we move on to, well, putting new ones in. And it comes back once again to my, my point, I suppose, is would society accommodate that and be prepared to take it on board? But totally adequate question, a really interesting question when you start thinking about 
the potential for a hospital to lower their energy requirements by using things like incineration. Um, Yeah, so so, um, after a conversation with my colleague in health and social care, um, an associate professor, and we were talking about this, and what she was telling me was that once upon a time, there was, not so long ago, in hospitals, there were laundry um, units. Um, So all uniforms and scrubs and everything would go through there. And to cut costs, government got rid of those. And so individual uh, members of um, uh, staff working in hospitals would go home and do their own laundering, um, etc. And so I wonder if that is something that we need to reintroduce as a way of, you know, uh, decreasing, doing two things, really limiting the, uh, you know, the, the, the disposability of clothing and PPE. And then number two, the spread of infection and virus just generally, because what what was happening, what is happening is, is that they then go, people work in hospitals, they then go on public transport with stuff that might be contaminated, their clothes, and then, you know, and spreading it along, um, say, you know, the the public transport system, etc. So, so I'll stop there for that. Let me see. Um, there's a question about since uh, COVID-19 outbreak, um, who knows what the emission figures are now, uh, perhaps things will balance out with flight cancellations, lockdown, etc. But what about the surge in binge watching? Um, and either way, more data, more carbon uh, pollution. So perhaps uh, this will be one of COVID-19's deadly legacy. Has anybody got a comment on that? I think that's what I said earlier on, wasn't it, when we were talking about the use of technology? Yeah. Undoubtedly, we can all see the drop in uh, car use, although sadly it seems to be on the rise again, but there is so much more to consider. It's it's almost whole life cycle um, analysis. I'm not entirely sure how that can be done. Energy uses in homes, things like that, possibly out, out. Well, I certainly know that working at home during the winter, you see a peak in my electricity bill. So I'm guessing <laughs> interested to see whether I get the same peak through sure. the summer while I've been here. Um, yeah. No, it's absolutely correct. We, we need it's a wider analysis than simply saying not using cars, therefore good. It is good, but is it bringing bad in? Totally agree. Hugh, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just saw going on to greenhouse gases. The Americans have got a, a survey point near Hawaii. And it last week recorded the highest ever level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere for thousands and thousands of years, 419 parts per million, which is really significant from what I understand. So there has been a temporary drop because of the pandemic, uh, but that could easily go up. That's why we just need to hold our politicians accountable, try and push the agenda as hard as we can. But there are there are challenges. I mean. In, you know, I live in London, we do. Uh, one of the great advantages of London is it's got a brilliant public transport system. At the moment, who's going to go on that unless you really have to? You'd be terrified. So people are going to use their cars, understandably. So worry, but it's a fact of life. How do we deal with those challenges? How, you know, how do we make public transport safe again for people to, to use? Because that's the way forward and massive car reduction. But at the moment, you can just see a big, redu- big increase in cars on the road at the moment. It's, um, it's a worry, but can see why yes no absolutely and actually yesterday i went and and bought a second hand bike with a kid's seat at the back because i'm 
do not want to use um, public transport. So that's mm. that's my effort towards that. Can I just quickly ask a question from Roswade? This is, I know I'm not going in order, but I'm trying to get a variety here. So Extinction Rebellion was making a strong case for action, but have been to some extent sidelined by the impact of the pandemic. How can we engage a powerful lobby on this again? Black Lives Matter movement has mobilized a strong lobby while not wishing to subvert their message. Can we link the climate action movement together with this? Black and ethnic minority and other vulnerable communities are most affected. And the question's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, you took it off too quickly. He can't bring it. I'm, I'm, I'm coming back. To, I'm coming back to you. Two seconds. <laughs> Censorship. We want more transparency. <laughs> we were doing so well. <laughs> Two minutes left on the clock. I'm just trying to find it. Oh God. Maybe you can finish it off for me. Right, okay, so sorry, uh, BAME and other vulnerable communities are most affected by climate change, so the links are there. Yes. <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs> i think the point was made in that question actually that yeah and, and and it's something that i spoke about earlier on that we do need to look at this in a more in interconnected way the impact of uh climate crisis with all of these intersecting issues gender race class uh sexual identities and and i think that you know there's uh there's a real opportunity in that respect to, because there's a real willingness now more than ever to, um, I guess, link up all those issues in, in one space. Yeah, that was a really quick end. Um, thank you so much, panellists. Did you have anything else to add before we close this session? I've got just one point. I think, for me, the global dimension of this, and particularly, uh, you know, a, a just transition is so important. If, if you look at climate change, you know, just going back to your point about inequality, it will disproportionately affect sub-Saharan Africa. Yes. So, you know, we, as part of this uh, recovery out of COVID, uh, we have got to, it, it, again, it, it, it's kind of enlightened self-interest. It's like with uh, any uh, COVID-19 vaccine. It makes it makes it's morally right, but it also makes uh, practical sense to share that with the world because if COVID nineteen comes back in poorer countries, it will come back to us. So these things are both the right thing to do, but they're also the sensible thing to do. I think that's the key point. What I'd like to say is that the changes that we need to make are big, but they're not so overwhelming that they can't be made. They can be made. We shouldn't try and you know daunt people by saying these are unbelievably massive changes they're challenging but we can make these changes and they're more than doable absolutely and i think covid19 has shown us that we can change overnight so yeah. let's leave it on that point over to you neil thank you everybody thank you to the panelists as well thank yes, thanks so much for joining us i think that this subject could have um, a day on its own um, to be to view all the different things that have come out so thank you so much for joining us everyone Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sustainability Research Pod. This is one of a series of podcasts where members of the Sustainability Research Group hosted at London South Bank University share their work and work with others in the sustainability field. Please share and subscribe to wherever you find your podcasts to automatically receive more episodes.